Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, the editor-in-chief of the journal, coming to you today from a very wet and gloomy Vancouver morning, but I'll be reaching across the country where I hope the weather is a little bit better and speaking with Sandra Quezada, who is the Associate Dean of Medical School Admissions and also Assistant Dean of Faculty Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Sandra and her co-authors have a paper coming out in the December 2021 issue of Medical Education entitled A Multi-Pronged Anti-Racist Approach to Optimize Equity in Medical School Admissions. Sandra, thanks very much for taking the time to talk with me. Hi, Kevin. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. And don't worry, it's pretty gray and cool in Maryland <laughs> today as well. I'd say excellent, but that would be schadenfreude, just uh, <laughs> being happy that somebody else has the same awful weather, but hopefully it improves. And I guess speaking of improvement, to find an awkward segue, you've been making some great improvements at your medical school by the sounds of things in terms of promoting diversity in your admissions process. Oftentimes I start these conversations with a question that related to what motivated somebody to do it, but I don't think it takes an extensive argument as to why this is an important issue for medical schools. So let me ask instead, you know, why you personally got involved in this area and then wound up taking on a role like the Assistant Dean of Faculty Diversity and Inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I should give the background that I'm a graduate of the University of Maryland School of Medicine myself, and I remember just how wonderful it was to be in a class that I felt was, you know, I knew it could be more diverse, but I definitely benefited from having other underrepresented students like myself in the class. I know that we sort of form tight friendship and study networks oftentimes. And just that sort of sense of community, sense of belonging on campus was a huge benefit to have and just really kind of enhanced the whole learning process for me. And so it was definitely something that I've always recognize that is important and would benefit our incoming students as hopefully we have more and more diverse classes. But I should also add, I really feel that I bring additional insight to admissions because I didn't get into medical school the first time that I applied. And I now retrospectively can clearly understand why that happened. And fortunately, I was able to basically complete all the interventions that were needed to make sure that I was successful later. But I sort of also recognized that I had something to bring to admissions, that I could kind of bring that perspective and hopefully be helpful for future medical school hopefuls. And so I started in 2013 as assistant dean for admissions, and our dean of admissions at that time had basically been in his role for about 30 years before retiring. And I think is definitely somebody who always championed diversity, always had I think his heart in the right place and the best of intentions. But sometimes, you know, when we kind of do the same things the same way and our intentions might be there, but I think if our actions don't also change and really concretely and intentionally show and reflect what our intentions are, then we don't get the outcomes that we want. And actually the classes around the time when I joined admissions in 2013 were less diverse than the class that I had in medical school. And there were actually even more diverse classes before I matriculated. So one of the things that was concerning to me was the diversity is actually getting worse rather than better, despite the fact that our nation is more and more diverse. And we know that that will only continue to increase. And we talk a lot, I think, in admissions about holistic 
review and how this sort of allows for hopefully that you're going to kind of really take into all of the life experiences that applicants bring so that, you know, you do look beyond just GPAs and MCAT scores and that you really are looking at the full applicant. And I think that that is a process that our committee was already doing and did very well. And yet, despite this very good execution of holistic application review, we weren't really generating a diverse class yet. So it really, to me, signaled that we have room for improvement. Again, we can't just keep doing things the same way and expect a different outcome. We're going to have to start changing the way we do things in order to see results. Thanks. And you've just made me think that it might be helpful to share some of the particulars about what's happening in Maryland or what has happened, I guess, historically as a journal with a global readership supporting underrepresented minorities and diversity is definitely a global issue, but many people listening won't know the situation in Maryland in terms of which groups are most underrepresented, what the priorities of your particular institution might be. Absolutely. I mean, I think it definitely is up to each institution to kind of determine what your goals are, right, in terms of what you would consider to be a diverse class, and then also who's being left out right now, who is really not sufficiently represented in the class. And at least for us, you know, we're in Baltimore, Maryland. Maryland is a very diverse state. It's actually 30% Black or African American, 10% Hispanic, so 40% are Black or Hispanic. And at the time, again, when I was coming into the process, we only had about 9%. You know, we were hovering around that 10% of these Black or Hispanic students. So we really considered that to be the student that's underrepresented is one who identifies as Black or African-American or Hispanic or Latino, Latinx. So those were our, I think, the groups that we recognized we had the biggest gap that needed to be addressed. But we also, you know, I would say, we're very open-minded in terms of, and are still in terms of diversity in general. I mean, we definitely recognize there are actually additional racial and ethnic groups that are also underrepresented, like our indigenous or native communities are also underrepresented in medicine. The Southeast Asian community is underrepresented in medicine and frankly would like to see, you know, hopefully more individuals that identify within the LGBTQ plus community. So we really are hoping for multiple levels and dimensions, also socioeconomic diversity. We tend to see people with more privileged backgrounds getting admitted to med school. So really kind of thinking broadly, recognizing that we had the greatest deficiencies in those areas of our Black and Hispanic students, but that the interventions that we're going to bring to bear to address that ultimately will benefit hopefully all of these groups. And I don't know if you want me to just like jump in with some examples of what we did. (laughs) Well, actually, why don't we just use that as an opportunity for next question, because that's exactly what I was going to focus on. So there are countless ways in which one could go about trying to intervene to support those groups you've just named. You've labeled your approach a multi-pronged anti-racist approach. In describing what you did as those various prongs, can you also help our listeners better understand why you decided they should be a priority as opposed to some of the other things that you might have wanted to try? I think the first intervention that made sense to me was to bring in implicit bias education and training for our committee members, for our interviewers. Again, I think because hopefully what it does is as we raise awareness of our own implicit biases, that we can start to appreciate how that might impact decisions for multiple 
individuals, right? So just again, like I mentioned before, if we're thinking broadly about all the different dimensions and identities and all the different ways we want the class to be more diverse, that just starting to at least begin the introduction and conversation about implicit bias could enhance outcomes for all of these diverse groups. So it really wasn't a specific sort of workshop to say, we need more Hispanic students or we need more Black students, but it was just like, we need diversity in general because of our own implicit biases. We tend to prefer what is similar to us. We have that tendency and that's a normal human response, but in doing that, we inadvertently then sometimes can leave others out. And so I think that's also a really approachable way to kind of get at this topic and recognizing that uh, fortunately most of the people who are in this work are certainly not intentionally excluding others, that it is oftentimes unintentional. It's oftentimes just this sort of carrying things forward the way it's always been done. And so I think starting the conversation with implicit bias workshops was really critical. And then the other intervention that I thought was really important and that hopefully would be impactful was just recognizing that our own admissions committee itself was not diverse and didn't really reflect the student group that we wanted to bring in. And so not that we made immediate change. This is why it was a process of a couple of years that as a committee member might retire or rotate off the committee that we would make sure that any available spot that opened up also therefore opened the door for a diverse faculty member to bring to the committee a new perspective to the discussions. And you also mentioned in the article changes in the interview process, uh, recruitment strategies. Uh, This clearly was a broad effort. What was altered in those regards? So in terms of recruitment strategies, one thing was that we, and this was all pre-COVID, right? So we were thinking very regional and physically we have historically black colleges and universities not far from us that we recognized we needed to have better communication and connection with and that we could do campus visits and so kind of increase the engagement and just raise visibility of our institution for students at those campuses. But also in all of our recruitment opportunities, regardless of which institution we were at, just being very vocal and explicit about how we value diversity, how this is important to us, how we recognize we have a problem in medicine in general that needs to be addressed. And I think that that's music to the ears of students who themselves are diverse, want to go to a place, hopefully, where they know they're going to be welcomed, where they know they're valued. And so just saying it out loud, I think sometimes was also a really important thing. And then again, with the interview process, I think the most important thing was just making sure that we had ensured that all of our interviewers had undergone the implicit training workshop. And we also started surveying, I don't even remember if we included this, but we did survey our applicants after the interview to make sure we're getting feedback about the experience to understand if there were any issues that needed to be addressed in terms of them feeling welcomed on their interview day. And it's obviously a process. It's a complex issue and not going to end, but not at all. What are the early returns telling you in terms of what success you're having? Yeah, so I know I think the reason why we wanted to publish this was because only really, I guess, after two years of implementing these changes, we saw an increase 
from, you know, where we were hovering at that 10%. I mean, we were even like excited if we got 13%, we thought was a little bit better of underrepresented students, again, our Black and Hispanic students, after we implemented these interventions, then the following cycle, we admitted a class that was 24% underrepresented. So basically twice where we normally were prior to that. And so that was really encouraging, really exciting to see actual measurable results as a result of all of these, you know, interventions. And also what's not published there yet, because that included our 2020 entering class, you know, continuing this work, August of 2021, our entering class is 31% underrepresented. So I think some of that too, is as your actual class of students that you have, that's helping you now recruit the next cohort that's coming in and those students see like, oh, I won't be the only Black student in my class. Or I see I have a community here, a group of people that I'll, you know, be able to connect with, I think is also just maybe one of the most powerful recruitment tools of all. And, you know, results to speak for themselves. That is a very big jump, almost almost tripling now by the sounds of things. And so if, again, I turn my attention back to the broad readership that might be listening to this, they're in a variety of different situations with a variety of different priorities in terms of which groups they yes. need to get in and what tools they have access to. So thinking generally about what lessons you've learned from all of this and for other people's needs to adapt those lessons to their context, what advice do you have for anyone else who wants to start down a path like you've gone on? Yes, I would say if you are in a position where you want to increase or improve the diversity of your incoming class, and again, only you can determine maybe who are the groups of applicants that you feel really aren't well represented in the class. I think it helps to have a target in terms of where you know you want to be and particularly which groups you're interested in improving your recruitment to really kind of step back and look at what you're currently doing and say, well, is this really the best way to do this? Could I enhance my engagement with either community groups or institutions where I know I'm going to have more face time and more opportunities to interact specifically with these students. And then also, again, like I said, just to be very open and transparent, verbal about recognizing we're not perfect. We're not at our goal yet. We want to do better. We want to have more students from your background. And, and I think, again, I think that's a really encouraging thing that applicants would want to hear. And then, again, I really think the implicit bias is a universal human issue and that the more all of us kind of raise our own awareness and that this is clearly international, right? This is across the world. We know that we have, you know, biases that could be affecting multiple different groups. And so if we can kind of raise our awareness of those biases, make sure that the decision makers that are influencing these decisions have that awareness. And ideally also maybe we're including some representatives from those groups that we know we want to bring more in. I think that those are two really very useful, productive interventions that really apply regardless of who the group is that you're interested in recruiting. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, not just for taking the time to talk to me, but for doing this work. It's so very important and thrilled to see that you're having such success so very quickly. The turnaround time in terms of the change you described did not take 
place over a long period, even though I'm sure it feels like it's been a long road for you to get to that point. Definitely don't mean to undersell how much effort it took to get there, but just remarkable changes once you hit that intervention stage. For anybody who wants the details, I'll just remind them again that the paper we've been discussing is a multi-pronged anti-racist approach to optimize equity in medical school admissions. The voice you've been listening to is Sandra Quezada, the senior author on that work, and you'll find it in the December 2021 issue of Medical Education. Thanks again, Sandra, and good luck with the next stages. Thanks so much, Kevin.